Hello and welcome to Fans, the podcast hosted by me, Sachin Akrani, in which I speak to people I like, find interesting, or both, about being football fans. And joining me for this episode to talk all things Queen's Park Rangers is podcaster, author, and a man who loves the 1990s even more than I do, it's Ash Rose. Ash, how are you? I'm good, buddy. How are you? Thank you very much for, for having me on. Oh, absolute pleasure. Uh, yeah, we've known each other. You know what? We've known each other for far longer than I think either of us realise. Um, we'll come on to this shortly, but you host the, the fantastic 90s podcast, the original 90s uh, podcast, <laughs> Alive and Kicking. And you asked me on, because uh, I was reflecting on our sort of relationship. We, we are mates. We've known each other for a little while, yeah. about how long ago that was. And, and you asked me back, I think, in um, late 2015. Wow. So sort of six years ago we first yeah. met. And uh, we've sort of stayed in touch since then via social media. I've been, you've been kind enough to get me back on Alive and Kicking a fair few times since then we obviously chat 90s football on twitter we're both big fans and we'll talk about that shortly as well but uh yeah no great when i started this podcast two years ago you were you were very much on the list to get to get on for various reasons it didn't happen but um yeah we're finally chatting delight to have you on oh it's very kind of you yeah I, I, it's it's crazy with the live meeting because i forget how far we've been doing it now and unbelievably there's still things to talk about in 1990s football which tells you how crazy and different that decade was but yeah that was back when we were in the studio as well before you know Skype and Zoom and, and yeah. all that started to happen but no it's been yeah I, when it comes to the 90s there are fewer people than yourself and that <laughs> I know I can rely on when there's a random reference and and whenever you talk about it on Twitter I'm usually the first to comment as well because I always imagined if we ever shared a flat session we would just sit there be watching on a Saturday night it'd be you bet Match of the day, gladiators. gladiators that would yeah. be our life, wouldn't it? Oh, absolutely, yeah. Blind day. Um, <laughs> watch match of day with Des as opposed to Des Lyon as opposed to Gary Lineker. Yeah. Um, no, you're right there. I mean, live and kicking. When we when I came on two episodes, I did with you in that in a sort of studio you had in Farringdon in in London. Yeah. Um, yeah. Do you want to just talk about that? Because it yeah, it feels like it's been going on for for a long time. When did it start? How many episodes have you done so far? What's been any special uh, particular highlights? Um, well, yeah, we've done, I think we're over 150 now, so which is pretty crazy to think, we've been, yeah. you know, that's 150 at least hours because, mm. you know, as, as all their podcasts are normally an hour or so talking about 1990s football. And yeah, you forget how long we, we've been doing it. We're on a, a slight hiatus at the moment due to uh, changing production companies, which I won't bore anyone with the ins and outs of that, but we will be back hopefully uh, next month. But yeah, I loved it. I mean, it's you know, I, it spun off the book that I wrote, Alive and Kicking, which is basically a coffee table book of, of 1990s football. Um, the You know, the highs, the lows, the merchandise, the stickers, you know, everything that encapsulated 90s football. I did a book on that. Um, and it looked like it, at, the, at the time it was, you know, podcasts were just coming into their own and starting to be a, a big part of everyone's lives. And it just seemed the the ideal subject to, to talk about on a podcast. So, yeah, we started that in 2015. Um, we've had some fantastic guests on there, like especially like both with people in the studio and and fans like yourself, but also footballers of that era. People I thought you know you'd never talk, I'd never ever talk to um, in my day job just because I talk about modern football so much. But you know we've had some great names on there. You know the names you wouldn't really think of. You know guys like and this is no disrespect to anyone because each of them had their own stories. But you know people like Steve Chettle. Or, you know, I'm trying to figure out who else you hate. Win and Paul Walsh. You know, those guys that we all yeah. grew up watching, but not necessarily hear from. Nigel Jensen, you know, people like that. And even the QPR guys, we've had like Rufus Brevett on there and people like that. So, yeah, I mean, I love 
I love talking about the subject, you know, as you know. So yeah, it's been it's been so much fun, really has. And we've done live shows as well. That was really that was something I never expected to do. We've done a couple of live shows. We did one with Tony DeRigo um, a couple of years ago in the, the Galazzo pub, which um, I think it's, I think it's sadly suffered from COVID now, but it was a great idea. Um, and stuff in Nigel Winterburn we've done as well. So that's been that's been really fun. So yeah, I, I love talking about it, and I'm hoping we can get it back to on on air as good as it's been. We're just going through some teething problems at the moment, but. It's obviously a good idea because, you know, it's been, you know, the, the Sassinist form of flattery is, is repeating it. So, you know, it's been copied and made into other podcasts. And, you know, that, so I'm flattered that that has happened from big comedians. Big names have done 90s football podcasts as well. So it's clearly a good idea, isn't it? Yeah, I feel like um, I feel like a kid whose mum and dad um, are on the verge of divorce because they're arguing all the time. Because I, there, there are two '90s podcasts I really love, yours and and let's let's tackle the elephant in the room. I think yeah. the other one you're referring to is quickly Kevin Willie Score. We've had Chris Scull on this podcast um, as well. He's talking about West Ham, big West Ham fan. He's on episode yeah. three of series one. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I love quickly Kevin. I've talked about it on Twitter a bit as well. It is great. I mean, yeah, I can. Yeah, um, you're being very funny about it, but obviously a bit of a dig as well because it did c- come some years after you started live and kicking. I mean, do you listen to Quickly, Kevin? What's your take on it? I, I've dabbled, and it's not. I don't not listen to it regularly on purpose as as a bee in my bonnet or anything like that. <laughs> I, just, <laughs> I don't ever want the shows to be too similar or yeah. or talk about the same thing. So I have listened to a few episodes. Uh, Matthew Christ, who's a regular on the, on our show, does listen a lot and, and fills me in on things that they say and if there's a couple occasions they may have got something wrong he, he laughs at it which you know we all we all can't you know we're not encyclopedias of the 1990s so I'm sure there's been some trips but you know there's room for both I suppose um obviously I'm not a primetime comedian so I don't come with that graphias I suppose in in terms of in podcasting but there was a moment actually a few years ago really one of those it will mean nothing to josh widdicombe but i was in soho i've been to a meeting or something and we crossed paths on the corner of oh soho my god me and josh widdicombe like <laughs> liam gallagher head. and david alburn uh, coming <laughs> face to face the two big powerhouses of 90s football podcasts i know in my head it was like that in his head he was just going about his day buying <laughs> his sandwich probably but for me i wanted just to there was a part of me who wanted to go mate why why did you do it and, and, <laughs> chat to him about it but yeah I think I lost my bottle but yeah it was quite a funny moment for those well me in the know of, yeah. a, of the 90s football juggernauts I like to call them yeah no it's very very amusing but yeah difficult for me because I'm a big mate of yours um you're a big mate of mine I love your podcast as well but I, I do love quickly Kevin as well and there's that um say maybe let's say friendly rivalry between you but yeah, you both do an excellent job I thank you talking about nice football and actually let's just touch on 90s football yeah you know obviously you're a huge fan you do a podcast about it I love it as well and I sort of, you know, I think often why I am so obsessed about football in the 90s. And I think essentially it's because it's a decade I started watching football in. And I think the decade yeah. you start watching football in, you you adore because it's the decade you fall in love with a sport. So you, you always see it through rose-tinted spectacles and think it was the best. Totally. But I do also genuinely think it was a really exciting and unique time for football, especially in this country, because I think it was a bridge between mm. the, the innocent, naive characters and goings-on that you had after 60s, 70s and 80s, um, and also the glamorous cosmopolitan game that we have now. So on one hand, you had Graham Taylor allowing himself to be filmed in The Impossible Job, and all the sort of characters you just touched on, the, the Nigel Jemsons and, you know, the Tony DeRigos and people who have incredible sort of backstories and really good talkers and lived incredible lives. But then you had Dennis Burkamp coming to this country, 
and playing amazing football and all those other great foreigners like you know Jurgen Klinsmann and Tony Yaboa and Georgie Kinkladze and Eric Cantona etc so for me the 90s football wise in this country in Britain in the UK it was a start of something new but it was also very rooted and relatable in a way to your average fan that it perhaps isn't now I think football is a little bit more detached now I just think it had the perfect blend of everything old school relatable accessible football but also something a bit glamorous and sexy is is that all your take on it as well yeah, and, and it was more fun, is what I always say. I, you know, not that you know, not that I don't have fun watching and talking and covering football in twenty twenty one, but I think there's a lot of what you say that whatever whatever era you grew up in, you find that you know, decade mm. the best. Like you could talk to someone who's slightly older than us and think the eighties is the greatest decade in football, and then the other side of it would be the two thousands. But for me, like we always call it on on, the, on live and kicking, the decade that changed football forever, and I think that's really true. Like. You think of everything that came in during the 1990s from Sky, the Premier League, Champions League, how the football tournaments changed. You know, we were back into Europe. We got champions winners, we got treble winners. You know, so that all the controversies that happened, you know, you got Cantona, Merson, the Bosman ruling, like all packed into these 10 years. And I, you know, if you took a snapshot from 1990, and then a snapshot of football from 1999. I don't think there's one decade that differs so vastly from yeah. the 90s. Like 2000 and 2010, obviously there are a lot of player differences and technological differences, but essentially it's the same game. If In the 90s, I think football just changed dramatically. And it all obviously kick-started from Italia 90, where everyone started to feel like it was okay to like football again, which I know you discussed on your last, on your last show in the Man City show, like, Italia 90 was that spark that everyone needed again. It was okay oh. to like football. And it, I just fell perfectly into that because that's the first World Cup I remember. Yeah. So that it kind of, I literally, that is my starting point. My entrance point to football was the 1990 World Cup. You know, the, my earliest football memory was the 1990 FA Cup final. I Because my my nan lived in uh, Croydon or just around Croydon at that time. And we, we went over that way that day, Cup final day. And all I can remember is because of Coffee Crystal Palace were in the final yeah. against Manchester United, mm-hmm. was just the whole sit, the whole town had flags from the lamppost. And I couldn't understand what was going on. My dad explained, and then we watched the match at my nan's. And that's my first footballing memory. That went in then. That the bug caught me. What is this? What is this, you know, fever that everyone's getting into? And then the World Cup. So for me to be part of that, as you were as well, and then to see the change and yeah, and I, I just think it was, as I said at the top of that, it, it was more fun and, as you say, accessible. We still had the old schoolness, but slowly but surely we were getting upgrades. You know, mm-hmm. Dennis Burkham is such a pivotal moment in that decade because he was, him and Klinsman coming to England was a big, like, whoa, not at the end of their careers, fully in their pomp and changing the game. And obviously you can't not discount Sky. Sky made such a massive difference whether we like it or not, at any point during the next 30 years, they made such a difference to, to football in, in terms of how it changed. And do I look back and wish it was still the 90s? Most days, but everything moves on. I think it, it's in its own capsule and and I love it. And I love talking about it and I'll continue to talk about it until someone tells me not to. Yeah, I'm exactly the same. Yeah, I think the one thing I was going to ask you about this as well is we're both huge fans of Euro 96. The last time we spoke actually was an episode of Alive and Kicking reflecting on Euro 96 just before Euro 2020 started. Um, I was sort of following your uh, your tweets during Euro 2020. You obviously got into it massively. You're a big England fan and, you, you know, you loved what they were doing. The fact they got to the final. Is there a part of you that that's slightly annoyed that really now, let's face it, Euro 2020 is better than Euro 96, isn't it? It, it is sadly, Ooh. isn't it? <laughs> Ooh. 
I think I'm gutted by that thought myself. Yeah, I love Euro '96. Yeah, it's a, that's a bold statement, Sash. I mean, obviously, performance-wise, yes, I guess yeah. it is. But I don't know if the zeitgeist is the same. I mean, I'd take Euro '96 and the music and everything else that was going wrong in England over whatever was number one. I couldn't even tell you, and the music of 2021 for sure, and just the the kind of it. But yeah, I guess I guess it's a better team was a better performance. I mean, I'm still really gutted about that final in 2020 uh, 2021 we should say so yeah i'm probably still going from year and six to be honest <laughs> <laughs> but i mean at the moment i always think about year and six and I've, I've said this so many times on on the live and kicking is it brought the country together like i'd never seen before mm, and and, yeah. and like this summer did and even 2018 as well when you think about it like where i grew up in southeast london there used to be these two pubs in a play in Welling in Kent that never got on. They're not there anymore. They, you know, there was classic. I want to say banter, but that's clearly not what I mean. Between the two pubs, violent, yeah. blah blah blah. I was never involved in it. I just knew of it. But the day we beat Spain um, in the quarterfinal, I, I think we went out afterwards to get a, I don't know, a takeaway or something. We drove into into Welling to get some food, and the whole the streets were like, but cars couldn't get down it. And this is just a random street in you know a south of london mm. suburb and those two pubs were celebrating everyone was singing free lions and that moment i don't think I've, I've, that moment's been topped i mean tw- this year was amazing but obviously covid is the caveat to that that we probably mm. couldn't celebrate as much as we wanted to and, and and be with people we wanted to as well and the grounds weren't as full as they could have been but yeah i mean euro 96 was, was was such a special time it's such a it's hard to explain to people about 1996 that if you weren't there because it wasn't just the football, it was the feeling in the country at the yeah. time. The, the TV, the films, the music, the culture, it was just very, very... I mean, I was only 13, 12, 13, so, I, you know, I was not in the drinking aspect of it mm. or, or being slightly older, but what I absorbed was it stayed with me um, forever. So, yeah, I mean, footballing-wise, yes, we did better, but I think you're in I6 as a whole. Can we say it still wins? Can we? Well, I'm going to say wins. Yeah, yeah. I love it. I love it. I, I'm slightly older than you. I was 15 at the time. And I think you, you nailed it there. It's the zeitgeist. It was a broad feeling yeah. around the country at the time. It was the fact the music was so good. Like both of us sort of into, you know, into our Britpop music and stuff. And Oasis were the sort of kings of, kings of the world at the time. And TV was great. And politics was even interesting because like the Tories were on their way out and Labour were coming in and all that type of thing. So, yeah, no, I'm going to say, no, let's say Euro 96 is still better than Euro 2020. It was, it was a wonderful time. Right, let's stop talking about the 90s. We, could do this, we literally could do this all day. We've got, we've got loads of other stuff to talk about, specifically your love of Queen's Park Rangers. Yes. Uh, we'll come on to why you support the club shortly and your memories of, of, of watching the team. The first thing I want to ask you is about West London rivalries, because it's a part yeah. of, I mean, I'm a Londoner, but it's a part of London that I feel slightly detached from. I'm, I'm from North London originally. I now live in South London. Um, and I don't, I know of sort of the, the and we'll come on to them now, the big four sort of West London clubs, but I don't know how they sort of feel about each other. So, and how they sort of interact and what their, you know, what their relations are like. So for those who don't know, the sort of four big clubs in West London are Chelsea, Fulham, Brentford, and of course, QPR. So quite a simple question, um, Ash, who hates who? <laughs> yeah, it's a funny one, isn't it? It is, it is a funny one. And I, I've never lived in West London. So I'll, I'll say that straight away. I've never lived that side and okay. I've, I've always lived um, south of the river. I'm in Kent now. I, was, I grew up in South East London. My dad, as we'll go on to, is, is, from, is from that area. But it's a, it's a very much era thing. So depending on what era you grew up in, I think it, it depends on who you hate 
in term in in that area. The the the, the big classic one is QPR Chelsea. They're the two, you know, no disrespect to Fulham and, and especially Brentford who are in the top flight for, for the first time since 1947, as you'll hear constantly for the next. <laughs> Um, it's that they were the big rivals, especially in the eighties, where they were about on a par. You know, the, the problem with the West London rivalry: all four teams are very rarely on a par with each other. They're, there's all, you know, I can't even remember the last time all four were in a, the same division. It's certainly not in my lifetime. Mm. And I think you have to go a long way back to find that. Um, especially Brentford, who, to be honest, I most of my life didn't really know how much they ha- they hate QPR. The Brentford QPR thing is that they really hate QPR and we kind of see them as a annoying little cousin, probably. Mm-hmm. That's yeah. how it's seen. I remember being in a club once many moons ago, back in my drinking days, and I think I my keys were hanging out my pocket and I had a QPR key ring on them. And this boat just was just shouted abuse at me in the line for chips. And I had no re- reason why. <laughs> <laughs> and he said, because he was a Brentford fan and it was my oh, first wow. exposure to... Yeah. Somebody hating Brentford. I think it was something about Martin Rowlands who had joined QPR from Brentford that summer. And I, it, I laughed actually because I hadn't I been exposed to that rivalry uh, my entire life because we'd never been in the same division. So there is definitely Brentford hating QPR. QPR have always hated Chelsea. Like from as long as I've been, we've sung some songs about Chelsea. Uh, the game when we came up in the Premier League in 2011 when we beat them and Heiger Heldson got the penalty, one of the best atmospheres I've ever seen at Loftus Road. I'm not sure a lot of the Chelsea fans that day realised the rivalry because mm. it's probably a lot of new Chelsea rather than the old school guys. So I think that's it. I mean, I don't really know Chelsea these days. I mean, they haven't got any rivals. I think, you know, they sometimes they hate Spurs, sometimes they hate Arsenal. So we traditionally are their rivals, but I don't know, in, mm. especially in the modern day, how many fans actually consider us that way. Um, and then there's Fulham kind of in the middle of it all who... We don't sing any songs about them. When we play them, it's a big game and we want to beat them. And I think it's the same for them. They hate Chelsea. We're just kind of there hating Chelsea together a little bit, I think. <laughs> yeah, I mean, obviously Chelsea are just in a different stratosphere yeah, now, aren't they? Totally. Three. Yeah. I mean, they're, they're, their rivals are, are Spurs, Arsenal and Barcelona, really. And they're, they're just yeah. in a different different level. Yeah, and I always get a sense with Fulham that sort of everybody kind of likes Fulham a bit. They're just a nice club. So, yeah. but, I mean, I could be nice. wrong. Nice day by the river and exactly. all that. Yeah. Best walk in football, as I've often said. <laughs> um, excellent. Yes, has it been hard for you watching sort of Brentford in the Premier League? That Friday night when they beat Arsenal recently, um, was, it, was just, it was a great night just as a neutral. Uh, obviously, a fantastic game, a bit of a shock. Also seeing fans back in the ground. Um, I think most people were sort of delighted for Brentford. But was it a bit tricky for you as a QPR fan seeing that? Um, yeah, and no. I mean, they, they deserve their moment. They've worked, mm. you know, they, I hate the term done it right, but they have seemingly done the right thing in terms of built the club up and up and progressed, you know, even since since Mark Warburton, who we're kind of replicating what they did in those early days now with him at the helmet at QPR at the moment. But I don't mind them having their moment in the sun. Um, I, I probably don't want them to have it more than a season, especially how, you know, seeing as we completely messed up how journey to the Premier League twice in the last, you know, in most recent time. So, I don't begrudge them their moment, and it was especially in this climate where you had fans in, and that was what well, you say. It was a great night um, for them beating Arsenal last week. But yeah, I mean, if it's one season, then go for it. I'd be happy to see them. If we pass them back on the way up in the in come May, I'll yeah, I'll be uh, quite happy with that outcome. Yeah. Excellent stuff. Yeah, we'll come on to modern QPR, specifically the team this season uh, later on in the podcast. But let's go back to the very, very start then. So obvious question. I think you touched on it there. I think it sounds like it's because of your dad. But uh, yeah, why is Ash Rose a QPR fan? 
yeah i mean it's the you know short answer is the boring one i'm afraid is that yeah my dad he he grew up literally he could show he showed me the the house he lived in when he was younger and they say stones throw and it was literally a stone's throw away um from loftus road when he was a kid um so he's whole, all his family his side the qpr my granddad was qpr my uncle was qpr his sons were qpr we've got a deflector though in, in an arsenal fan these days but so that that was bought me but the, the the twist in it i suppose the, and the tr- the unique thing to my growing up being a qpr fan is that i lived completely outside of london i lived mm. in a place called plumstead in, in South East London, where the, the local clubs were Cholton and Millwall to a certain extent. So I went to school with a lot of, well, I was the only QPR fan in the school. So I was always known as that, you know, he's the QPR fan. <laughs> People may not know my name, but they knew I was the QPR fan because I was the only one in my school. And so I grew up a lot of Arsenal fans, a lot of Main Eye fans. And then the minute Cholton got promoted in 1998, they all became Cholton fans because they were the local (laughs) club who suddenly were in the Premier League. And I was turning around going, weren't you Man United last year? (laughs) Suddenly. I often see it that way around, do you? Man United to Cholton. It often goes the other way around. (laughs) Yeah, I've always been Cholton. No, no, Cholton. Yeah, till I, you know, it's like (laughs) local club comes good. Cholton are one of those again they're a bit full of like like no one really hates Cholton they're a nice little family club in South East London you know they've had some horrible times with the valley and stuff like that and everyone kind of likes Cholton and my my best friend is still a you know a season ticket holder at Cholton so I've always got a soft spot for them but yeah I so I grew up the kind of the oddball football wise at my school which it always reminds me of Nick Hornby's quote in in Fever Pitch that I think it's something like when people think of Arsenal, they always think of him. So I grew up that whenever something happened at QPR, I am yeah. I got the feeling that someone who ever associated with me in my area would be thinking of me at that time because I was probably the only QPR fan that they knew. Because as a kid as well, the other side of London seems like miles away. You know, it doesn't... Yeah, yeah. Now, we you know, you can jump on a train and a tube when you grow up and you're there, but... South London, especially where the tube links aren't as well, there are none. It seemed like a long, long way away. So yeah, that's that's where it comes from. It's my dad's passed along, and it's kind of me and my dad's thing. It's I still go to games with my dad. It's always been that way. Um, we all sit. We've sat in the same seats for thirty odd years now. So it's it's always been me and my dad's thing. So I want to take my daughters if they will want to go at some point. I'm I'm slowly getting that in. The older they get, she my, my eldest is five now. So hopefully I'm feeding that in slowly but surely. But if we don't, we don't, and it will stay with me and my dad, which is kind of I've been our thing. No, that's great. Yeah, no, that's fantastic. I mean, my, my daughter's 10 and has zero interest in football. So I'm actually quite glad about it because I think it's going to save me a lot of money on kits yeah. and also travel, given I'm a Liverpool fan as well. Yeah. Um, I mean, speaking about your dad there, I mean, he would have grown up watching, obviously, QPR in the 70s when you had a, you know, a really good team. I mean, he finished second in, in the first division in 1975-76 with players like Phil Parks, Frank McClintock, Jerry Francis and Stan Bowles. Dave Sexton was the manager. So is that the sort of team that you grew up hearing a lot about? Did your yeah. dad talk a lot about that side, that generation? Yeah, totally. I mean, we st- they still do. I mean, my mm. dad's favourite line, whenever we lose, out, you know, from Loftus Road, and, you know, in many years that's been a lot. I, I can count the steps as we come out of our block where he says, it's not Stan, though. It's not Stan. Like, you know, he's... Uh. that That's Stanley Bowles. You know, I wasn't... I hadn't appreciated him in the time that I wanted to. Obviously, I've seen footage upon footage of him over the years of how good and, you know, they use the term maverick all the time, but he very much was yeah. a maverick of that era, you know, in the betting shop at five to three 
hardly train all week, but he'd turn up and do something with the football that no one had ever seen. He, you know, scored goals in Europe and keep going in Europe during that the following season after we finished second. But yeah, you hear fabled that team was some team that finished second. Arguably, should have the best team that never won the league of that era because you know the players you mentioned. It was only a, a last day defeat to, to Norwich that didn't win us the title. And obviously Liverpool won it that year. And it was one of the, you know, back in those days, I think Liverpool played three days later, I think it was. So that we had to hang on to not know if mm-hmm. we won the league. You know, that wouldn't happen now because everything no. has to happen on the yeah. last day at the same time because it's fair and because TV companies like it that way. You know, back in then there was, I think it was a three day break before Liverpool eventually, well, I can't remember who their last game was against, but they, they sealed the title. But that team is... You know, it's very much known as the, the you know, the on the pedestal of, of QPR teams. That and the 67, you know, we've only ever won one major trophy in our lifetime, which is the 67 League Cup final. So that team is held in high regard. But that was the third division team we beat West Brom, who were the top level team at the time, the only time that's ever happened. So to finish second, that team is, and Jerry Francis is another football, you know, lovely, lovely footballer. And he's synonymous with my supporting of the club and everyone at the club is Jerry Francis is like a thread that goes through QPR from the 70s almost, you know, to the 2000s. So, yeah, it's very much, that is the team. And, and, and even in the 80s, you know, we reached the, you know, the FA Cup final in 82. We had Terry Venables during the mid-80s. There's, there's a lot of great teams, but I think, the, you know, the 70 team, 76 team is, is the one that everyone looks up to. Yeah, well, speaking of Jerry Francis, so he was manager of QPR when you went to your first ever QPR game. Uh, it was the 28th of December, 1992. Uh, as I said to you when you told me the date uh, via Twitter uh, about a week or so ago, 15 days after my first ever Liverpool game, which was the 13th of December 1992, a 2-1 win over Blackburn and at Anfield. So, yeah, uh, we are very much kid, ch- children of the 90s, yeah. early 90s specifically. Yeah, so as I said, 28th of December 1992, a 4-2 win over Everton at Loftus Road. And yeah, reading about it, some game. So, um, <laughs> so just summarise this. Andy Sinton got hat-trick. Gary Penrice got the other one for QPR. Stuart Barlow got both of Everton's goals and they had two players sent off. Neville Southall, the goalkeeper, let's not forget, and Paul Rideout. Um, I mean, bloody hell, that's some introduction to live football, isn't it? And watching QPR. And uh, I always remember my dad saying, it's not always like this. So. <laughs> I can imagine, yeah. <laughs> it's not always like this. But no, what a, yeah, what an introduction to, to the guy. I always remember I was wearing this, I was full on like QPR had thrown up on me. I had the shell suit, <laughs> I had the, you know, the classic FM a shirt that was that season shirt at the time, which would become known as one of the classic shirts because of that successful season that year as well. And, you know, we, we always talk as fans as, as that moment. And I mean, Loftus Road hasn't changed a lot in the 30 odd years that mm. I've been going. It's very much an old school ground. There's constant talk of us moving. Whether ever that will happen, I don't know. Whether we could fill it, I don't know. But that's, that's a conversation for another day. But it's a, you know, it's a very tight, stadium opposition when it's full especially under the lights it's not a nice place to play if you're the opposition asked Didier Drogba that day at Chelsea as I mentioned earlier who, who didn't like it or one matter who had to take a corner with you know the the 20,000 QPR fans mm-hmm. shouting things that he'd probably never heard before but I remember walking up those steps I've always sat and I haven't had a season ticket for uh, ooh, five or years five or years so and I didn't at the time in, in between I have had season tickets but I've always sat in the same Ellsley Road block which is our block in the corner of the of the stadium and that's where we always go and I just I always remember just walking up those steps and you know we I know you talked about it with guests on the show before that first moment as you walk up and it's massive it seems so much bigger than it does on telly you stand there and and take it all in for that sort of five seconds look around the ground how green the pitch is 
I watch kids do it now, like that oh. first moment of that first being introduced to a to a football ground. The smells as well, like nowhere, nothing smells like a football ground. That mix of, I mean, not so much smoke anymore because you're not allowed to, but you know that burger smell mixed with smoke, mixed with uh. the pints that you've had in the pub before, and whatever else. The bovril, like bovril, is such a football thing that yeah, it's yeah. still going, and no one really knows why. It's the smell of I've missed that since COVID. Just the smell of football as well, and I would yeah. say live football is sort of beautifully hot and sweaty. It's yeah, like you totally. feel disgusting, but you're just you're just reveling in how disgusting. Yeah, it is, you know? and especially off this road where the seats and your knees are yeah, still yeah, old yeah. school, so they're right up to your face. Even for someone, you know, I'm not the biggest of guys, but my knees are still up there. I feel sorry for someone who's slightly bigger stature because it must be a horrible experience <laughs> people tell me the away end's not nice i've never been in the away end at loftus road so i, I don't know how uh, uncomfortable it is i know it's got a big post in in, in some of the views so which is again an old school ground but yeah the game as you as you originally asked was yeah it was quite the game i mean andy sinton is one of was one of my heroes as, as we'll probably talk about last year so to to see him score a hat trick um on here on my first game i think it's his only definitely his first senior hat-trick oh it was I spoke to Andy actually because I'm, I'm working on a new book at the moment and I spoke to Andy about this game a couple uh, a couple of months ago and how and it was just funny I said to him it was my first game and he remembered it being his first hat-trick he didn't he didn't score enough goals he said in his own admission but this was a definite day when he he was there a couple of tap-ins as well which for a winger you don't really expect but he was always good at ghosting in on that left mm. flank a proper old school winger and he since and obviously got in, international honours in that Graham Taylor era as well and, and then Penno with the with the other goal classic you know 90s massive tash like Tom <laughs> Selling love love pictures at Gary Penrice and set a goalkeeper we had at the time Seb Dykstra looked exactly the same big <laughs> mop of black hair massive tash so yeah I always loved another underrated enough tashes in football now is there nobody has one no no, no. Yeah. Alison Becker got a moustache last season, yes. Liverpool's goalkeeper, and like t- it almost blew Twitter up. It was having a moustache, it's a footballer with a moustache, but in the 80s and 90s, it was commonplace. Every- just got, yeah, especially yeah. the single moustache as well. Exactly. Like, yeah. a stubble or beard, <laughs> full on, let's just go for the under under the nose. And Gary Payne has perfected that. Great little striker, really underrated. Someone called me that playing five aside then, and I took that as an absolute compliment. <laughs> they went, go on, Penrice. So I was like, thank you very much. <laughs> But yeah, it's the, like Neville Salgo. I mean, how often do you see a goalie sent off? Yeah. It's so rare, isn't it? I don't think I've ever seen a goalkeeper sent off. I might probably have at least once, but it, yeah, yeah, it's a real rarity, isn't it? It's kind of yeah. it's one of those things you love to see, like seeing a substitute being substituted or a referee falling over. Just one of those things you want to see at least once in your life. A goalkeeper yeah. being sent off. I think it, yeah, he came out and it was it wasn't a foul. It was a classic. It came out and caught the ball like that. Pro- they, when was the last time I see a goalie do that as well? <laughs> yeah. like, is that a nineties thing that they just stopped doing it? They drilled <laughs> where they kick the ball out more often now with their feet, and they just drilled not to do it. But yeah. he came out too far uh, and got sent off. I think, I think I always remember Andy Sinton slapping him on the back of the head as he went got sent off because he was the first player. So he was sent to all that. And I always remember Jason Keaton, there's a 90s name for people, who came on to replace Neville Southall, an Australian goalkeeper who probably played very few games for Everton in his career. But that name always is in the back of my head somewhere because he was part of my first game experience. And so I think we went 3-0 up and then Stuart Barlow came on um, and scored two goals and, you know, some would say typical QPR, but I think every fan of every club thinks that when they, things go against them, it's typical blah, blah, blah. Yeah, but yeah before the fourth went into to really, and obviously they lost right out with two bookings as well. So I, I met Stuart Barlow once at a um, Masters event, called him Gary Barlow as well. Another <laughs> 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 fantastic 90s reference. Yeah, I know. Well, well, they, just, they just roll out, Sash. They just roll out. But uh, I mentioned that game, and that was one of his favourite games. Even though they lost, he felt like, you know, he made such a... Because he came off the bench. Yeah. Almost, 
establish the point. But yeah, that was my first game. And my actual second game of that season was later on, uh, um, I think it was Easter time, we beat Nottingham Forest 4-3 at Loftus Road. So for a, for those first two games, I really was a kind of a lucky charm for, for QPR scoring goals. And I think for, like for Les Ferdinand, yeah, because it was the bank holiday win- weekend, Les Ferdinand's got a hat-trick back-to-back hat-tricks on the Saturday against Forest and then on the Monday at Goodison Park against Everton again. So, yeah, it was, I mean, that was some team, 92-93 anyway. So it was a pleasure to, it was, although, as we go on, as we'll probably talk about later, I didn't ever got to see my hero, Roy Wegley, in the flesh because he left the club at that point. He was the guy that I grew up on in those early 90s years of being the man. So, but he'd left the club by that point. Him and Jerry didn't really get on. So I didn't get to see Roy Wegley in the flesh is my only uh, disappointment as a QPR fan. Well, I was literally going to ask you about that spooky timing. So I was going to say to you, we're going to come back to the 92-93 season because as you touched on it, a very special season for QPR. But before we did that, I wanted to ask you about Wegley because, uh, yeah, going back to you on Twitter, talking about 90s football, you probably talk about uh, nothing more than Roy Wegley. So just for, for, for listeners who aren't aware who we're talking about, he was an American forward who played for QPR between 1990 and 1992. 29 goals and 65 appearances for the club. You also got 41 caps and seven goals for, for the USA national team. Um, I remember I remember him really well, obviously, with the same generation. I remember him as one of the very few foreign players who were in the, in the first division, so not the Premier League, the old first division, along with the likes of Anders Limpar and Eric yeah. Thorsvet and, and Ronnie Rosenthal. And you know, I remember him. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I remember being, yeah, just a really skillful and creative player. I mean, how, how skillful and creative was he? How good was he? And yeah, I think you, well, you referenced it there. He only stayed at QPR for two years. Is that, yeah, it's falling out with Joe Francis, was it? Yeah, I mean, he's a classic. I mean, there's an obsession at Rangers with the number 10 shirt that comes from Stan Bowles and Rodney Marsh before him. Somewhat Simon Stainrod a little bit in the 80s. But, you know, Roy Wigley had that shirt for two years. And I mean, I'm, I'm, I've always been a little bit obsessed with Americana as well, mm-hmm. which for anyone who follows me on Twitter will know that I do a lot of work for WWE as well. So that kind of cross meshes that. I'm a big, I love America. I love everything America and, and things like that. So I think that intrigued me, first of all, the fact that he was an American international, although he was born in South Africa, Roy Wegley, he played for the United States because South Africa didn't have a team at that point. But he was a very, very yeah, he had, he had all the tricks, all the skills had that long mane flowing locks that just yeah. made him look like, you know, a, a handsome Chippendale on his day <laughs> off playing, playing for Chippendale. There's a nineties reference for you. For a London football team. And he, he, he wasn't, he was a scorer of all sorts of goals. I wouldn't say he, um, you know, classic. He's a scorer of great goals. He scored some great goals, the greatest being, and if you haven't checked this out, anyone listening, and Sash, I'm sure you've seen me post it on Twitter numerous times, he scored a goal of the season winner for ITV in the 1990-91 season at Ellen Road, where it's one of those, if Lionel Messi had scored this goal, mm. you know, he went round five or six players before slotting the ball past John Lukic, um, wearing our classic Dennis Menace um, hoops away kit. It's a goal that's been that's been played over again. It's one of the classic QPR goals. And that was Roy. Like he is a is a maverick type skills. You know, he, when him and Ferdinand played up front together, you had the classic combination. He was kind of the number 10 drifting in and out with the skills and finishing. And you had Ferdy, who was the, you know, the mm. Kaku drog but type striker, strong, big in the air, strong in the finish. But yeah, I don't know. I just took to Regs so much. He um it just he lit up Loftus Road when I was watching the highlight packages that he was, it would have been at that point. And yeah, just gutted. I never got to actually see him play. Um, I did, however, get to interview him last December, which after about five years of trying to track him down, 
uh, I finally got him because uh, I, I, I got I emailed him. I found it. I found him a couple of years ago and he was just absolutely reluctant to talk about football. He said, he, you know, he turned gone. He turned to golf. He became a professional golfer. Oh, late really? in his career. Oh, wow. Um, on the pro circuit, not uh, by his own ambition, not very far. Okay. But he'd actually turned pro. Um, so he'd left his football career behind. And I kind of thought, well, OK, that's fine. And then through. So I, I'm in the editor of Kick magazine. I was working with an American company with, who did some skill stuff. I found out that he was working for them and he agreed to do an interview solely for me over Zoom. So if anyone goes on Twitter, they'll see my pinned tweet is me smiling next to Roy Wegley, smiling probably bigger than on my wedding day that I actually <laughs> did to speak to Roy. And uh, he talks about his, yeah, he, it wasn't really a falling out with Jerry, more just a different ideas. You know, Jerry had his way of playing. It probably wasn't a place. The 92-93 team were very workmanlike, very, very much a team. And not that Roy wasn't a team player, but he was that, as he said, Paul Gascoigne, Matt Letizia, he was in that mould of yeah. he would do something off the cuff or unpredictable, and that's not the way Jerry played. So he he was sent um, off to Coventry um, and then Blackburn um, before going back to the States. And he also wore the greatest shirt, which if I'm not talking about Roy Wegley on Twitter, it's usually about the USA 94 away shirt. And he wore that at the, at the 94 World Cup as well. So everything is Roy Wegley, Sash. That's that's my life, pretty much. Yeah, I know you're a massive fan of USA 94 as well. Uh, yeah. Well, partly because obviously it's in the 90s, but yeah, the, the American aspect of it as well, yeah. Um, excellent. Love it. I, I was going to ask you if you ever got to speak to Roy Wegley. I'm absolutely delighted uh, that dream came true for you. That's, that's <laughs> fantastic. Um, right, let's go back to the 92-93 season. So, of course, it's the first ever Premier League season. QPR finished fifth, four mm. points ahead of uh, Liverpool, I should say, finished sixth. My team had a, had a very bad first Premier League season. You were the highest place London side as well that season. I mean, a really good achievement and a pretty incredible one, one now in the context of where QPR now, obviously, in the Championship. Um, and yeah, it was obviously the first season you were watching QPR play live in the flesh as well. So it just must have been an incredibly special time for you that season. Yeah, it was. I mean, I've still got the flag in somewhere that says, I mean, it's a bit battered to be have my office wall now that says top London club 1993, because mm. it sounds like, especially to anyone outside London, a small achievement. But for a club that I supported that was, you know, on the other side of London and no one else I knew apart from my family supported to be, you know, to finish above the likes of, you know, Arsenal, who'd won the league only a couple of seasons before that. Um, Spurs were always a big club. Chelsea, the rivals was massive. But Jerry had come in, off, he replaced Don Howe um, that summer and he built a team that was so underrated and so were very much a team that knew everyone's position, everyone's job. And then at the front, which I think every good team needs, you had the superstar in which we had Les Ferdinand who had slowly built his way back into the QPR team after we signed him from Hayes, I think it was, mm. in, the early, in the late 80s, gone on loan to Besiktas in Turkey. So, you know, if you like, he'd become a man out there and finally was given this central role for QPR with everyone else around him. It's kind of, you know, especially in the striking department, like guys like Penno, who I mentioned, and Bradley Allen, Wegley to a certain extent before he left, were, give, were given the secondary role. But, you know, Les was a beast that season. But the team in general were, every player was just made for that role. You know, we'll, when we talk about my team later on, a lot of it is made from that team because you had Bardsley and Wilson on, on the flanks who were vastly underrated Barsley got capped for England but it's an absolute travesty that Clive Wilson never got capped for England expert penalty taker but a, a fantastic left back he's just unfortunate that Stuart Pearce and Tony Dorigo and Graham Lasso was starting to come into his own at that point were ahead of him in terms mm. of um, England in, in recognition and then in the middle you had Ray Wilkins who even at that point in his career 
was still one of the classiest footballers around. And when you've got Ray pinging balls into the likes of Andy Sinton and then into Les Ferdinand, it's, you know, kids won't know of Ray Wilkins, but if we're talking, if I could compare him to anyone, it was kind of Kevin De Bruyne. Like Ray saw mm. passes, you know, 10 seconds before anyone else did, even in his later stages at Rangers. And he, I, I used to watch him and just see how he would read the game. And I didn't really know of him because I've not known his past. The fact that he played for England in the, mm. the early 80s. But it was, you know, it was a magical season. Um, we beat Leeds 4-1, who were champions at the time. I mean, the season before that, we classically beat Man United 4-1 at Old Trafford, which is one of the biggest results in, in the club's history. And Dennis, Dennis Bailey. Dennis Bailey, yeah, I was about yeah. to say, yeah. It's iconic games like New Year's Day or something. And I, was, I remember Day watching it on the big match, yeah, with Elton yeah. Wells. But yeah, it was light yeah. and telly, wasn't it? I think we were, he was the only person to score a hat-trick at Old Trafford in the league and then, yeah. until David Bentley, I think. I think it was oh, Bentley okay. who did it in the sort of early... 2010s I think it was but yeah that's a classic game but yeah we beat Leeds as well the following season as well yeah but yeah just a, a great manager a great team and Les at the Sir Les as we all call him at the front slowly becoming the, the superstar that he would become getting England recognition as well yeah well you touch on it there so obviously people who listen to this podcast will know I always get a guest to come on to pick an all-time 11 uh, based on the best 11 players they've seen from their club during the time they've been watching that club and, and Ash has been kind enough to do that and I can tell you exactly how many players from that 92-93 squad you've got in your all-time 11 Ash it's seven so it's a yeah. huge number and um, yeah the standout you've mentioned him a few times here let's talk about now Les Ferdinand so he spent eight years at QPR between 1987 and 1995. He scored 80 goals in 163 games. So that's essentially one in two. Fantastic, yeah. uh, fantastic ratio. And he is quite simply one of the most iconic strikers of the 1990s. Um, sort of Jamie Vardy before Jamie Vardy in a way as well, because as you said, he played yeah. non-league played at non-league level before making it at QPR and then at Newcastle and obviously with England. He played for Viking Sports and Southall. Uh, before joining Hayes and then as you say going on to QPR in 1987 and as you say they had a really kind of slightly nomadic eclectic career as well because he, he joined Brentford and Besiktas in Turkey as you also said on loan before really establishing himself at, at QPR in 1990. Um, I remember him so well just for me what as I said one of the most iconic strikers of the 1990s and he was just absolutely brilliant wasn't he? No no um, it's no exaggeration to say he's a QPR legend. Oh no no not at all I think if you ask anyone who did their QPR one to eleven of any, probably of any era, they mm. try and squeeze Les. You know, if we're doing, if if I was being unbiased to my own era and said we did an all-time eleven of QPR, I think he's in a front three with you know Rodney Marsh and Stan Bowles. I think they're mm. it's your front three uh, for QPR. Les was that good, and it, I always think a player is that good that he could play in any era. Les Ferdinand could play football in twenty twenty one. He oh, was, yeah. He was yeah. that good. As I said earlier, he was that Lukaku kind of drogba, back to goal, strong, could turn a defender. And I tell you what, Sash, in the air, I don't think I've ever seen someone as good in the air. And he wasn't mm. the tallest. No. Like he, yeah. he wasn't, you know, he wasn't a uh, maybe. I think he's just under six foot, or maybe just over six foot. But he wasn't a Duncan Ferguson. He was naturally great in the air because he's quite a tall bloke. Mm. But Les, Les was the power he used to get behind his headers were quite ridiculous. And the same with his shooting. There's a goal, I think it's this season against Sheffield United, where he just picks the ball up pretty much on the halfway line and just doesn't go round anyone, but he just powers forward. And his strides are so huge because his thighs were so big mm. that they just back off him. And then he thunders a, a goal into the bottom corner. And he was just... We knew he was he was on borrowed time after that season. We knew after 92-93, because that's what QPR did. They were... 
that's the model they became in those in that era. They would buy players from the lower leagues or even non-league, build them up, shine them up real nice, and then sell mm. them on. You know, it happened with Trevor Sinclair. It happened with Andy Stinson. You know, that was the model that we would get what we could from them, establish it, and then sell them on and make a massive profit. And is what we kind of are doing now with SA last season. Hopefully, it won't happen with Chair in the, before the window closes. But that's what we did with Les, and it's. it's it's no surprise he went on and did what he did at Newcastle. Kind of gutted he never won more honours on a team basis. Now, I'm sorry, they all say that at Newcastle, but he won the PFA Player of the Year, I think, in his first season at Newcastle. Yeah. Well, that 95 96 season, uh, I think he won Player of the Year. I mean, that's a year, obviously, yeah. Newcastle blew that 12 point lead, and Man United obviously won the title, and they had Cantona back. But I think I'm pretty sure Ferdinand yeah. got Player of the Year, PFA Player of the Year. That, so it's a good, and that was his debut season at Newcastle, as you say. Yeah, he he was just a beast, and he just he's you know again in England he was unlucky. We always talk about the nineties, like the the plethora of strikers mm. that England had at their disposal was was frightening. And he he was there at you know, ninety six, he was there at ninety eight, but he never quite got the run that he well, QBR fans would say he deserved. But when you've got the likes of Shearer, Sheringham, Wright, who else you know. Um, I was gonna. I've got the names here because I was gonna yeah, ask you about this. I mean, yeah, Shearer showing him. Got Ian Wright, Robbie Fowler, Stan Collymore, yeah. Andy yeah. Cole, Chris Sutton, Dion Dublin. I probably left a few out. I mean, he Michael earned seven. Owen. Michael Owen, yeah, right at the end of the nineties. I mean, he earned seventeen caps for England. Les Ferdinand, which yeah. to put into context, Eric Dyer's got forty-five. So that tells you how I was gonna say. Yeah, as you're saying, how unlucky Les Ferdinand yeah. was because if he was playing for England ten years later. He would have got 100 caps, I think. He would have, you know, he'd have been competing with what Rooney and sort of Crouch yeah. and Defoe. I don't know if I've left anyone else out there. And he was miles better than, well, not miles better than Rooney. Rooney's obviously exceptional, but he was the best of the, he would have been the best of the rest and probably maybe had a partnership with Rooney. He was, as if younger people listen to this who, who don't quite realize how good Les Ferdinand was. I mean, he was just, as you say, had absolutely everything power, pace, great in the air, could hold it up, clever, smart. He was just, yeah, for me, the complete striker. He was absolutely fantastic, I thought as well. I remember him playing for England. I think he made his debut against San Marino as well. And I don't know if it's the same for you, Sash, but when he's your own player and you get this more being a Liverpool fan, because there's always Liverpool players in, in the England squad, but you just it's like you, I was watching my own player can. You root for him like it's your son yeah, in the yeah. league, don't you? I, I did the same yeah. this summer with Lyndon Dykes playing for Scotland. Like I didn't really care what Scotland did, but I really wanted Lyndon Dykes to, to show how good he can be. Not too good because we want to keep him. But I always have that. That always stems from when Les played for England. That's how it started. That you know that was our. And even when he went to Newcastle after that, it was like, well, you know, he's our boy. He, you know, yeah. go on, Les. You, you do what you, you show what you can do. And it's great that he's back at the club now, and and he's a big part of what is doing things right at Queens Park Rangers. And it feels so nice to have him at the helm. He's not done everything right by his own admission, and there are a few, you know, there are detractors to what he's done in his director of football role, but. He's trying to do things mm. the QPR way, and it's you know that's why we call him Sir Les. It's pointing. There's Holloway. Nice play by Ferdinand. Kept in play. Oh, great play by Andrew Impey. Can he get the cross in now? He does, and Ferdinand. Oh, that was superb! What a goal for Queens Park Rangers. That was magnificent. A beautiful cross from Impey. And Rangers lead 1-0. That was super. McGrath. This is Holloway. Sorry, rather, Simon Barker. Ferdinand. Now Holloway. Now Holloway. He tried to chip it over. Ferdinand. Oh, wonderful goal, Ferdinand. 
It's the only sight of Villa's goal that he's had in the first 44 minutes. But he didn't hesitate, did he? It did bounce, perhaps a little kindly for him, right on the edge of the penalty area. But it was a lovely height for the Rangers number nine. And he beat Nigel Spink right up in the top corner. So the free kick now for Queen's Park Rangers. They have a number of options here. Wilson's there, but Ferdinand steps up. And, oh, and what a strike! Les Ferdinand with a brilliant goal for Queen's Park Rangers. The power behind that was quite something else. Bent it right round the wall and into the top corner. Shearer knocks it out. Barker. Rangers try and construct things from the back and and calmly they go about their work. Here's Ferdinand. Closing in on the edge of the box now. Les Ferdinand to be a great goal if he could score and he's done that. Great goal there from Les Ferdinand. Terrific stuff. And that's put Rangers level. He was past more and as soon as that was the case, the goal was always likely. Defending by Norwich City, who are growing into this game. He wants a free kick here as well, but the referee is unmoved. Norwich look to build again. Owen back, and this is Les Ferdinand. Options to his left-hand side. Ferdinand's going to go alone here, it's Les Ferdinand, it's a brilliant goal. What a way for QPR to double their lead here. And there can be no doubt, surely, Les Ferdinand is a striker, approaching the very top of his personal game. They just couldn't handle his power, his pace or his finish. Make a run from midfield and get free, Sinclair on the ball. Ferdinand dropping a bit deeper and hitting it instantly. An extraordinary goal from Les Ferdinand. It flew into the top corner. Absolutely no chance for Gary Walsh. The earliness of the shot surprised him, and the speed of the shot left him totally without hope. A fantastic goal from Les Ferdinand, which will only encourage Manchester United to look at him eagerly should he become available in the transfer market. But they love him here, the Queen's Park Rangers fans, and you can see why. That's smashing. Do you remember where you were when you heard he'd gone to Newcastle? The emotions you felt. Was it inevitable? Was it, had it been building for a while? I can't quite remember myself. Yeah, no. I think... He was Andy Cole's replacement, wasn't he, essentially? Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. I think the season before... I. Th- I, I think I remember there was almost an agreement between the player and club that he'd give us one more year. Mm. And then, because he, I think he was beginning to know that, you know, the, the, the timeline of his career, because he'd come into the team late, later than you do in the modern time. So I, I seem to remember there was kind of this feeling that this is Les's, everyone was kind of knew that this was Les's last season. So it was more, it wasn't more like, oh, the day Les went, it was more a slow yeah. kind of realisation yeah. as the season ended. 
um, and what we would do with the money. And in the end, we completely, we did a Gareth Bale, if you like, and we, <laughs> did, we spent it on absolute nonsense. And that's why we were relegated the following season. But yeah, I, I remember when he came back with Newcastle and it being one of those weird moments where you see him in a different coloured shirt in the flesh and it not feeling right. And we hadn't spent them. You know, we had Kevin Gallon come through, who was a phenomenal striker at youth level and a great player, if it weren't for a couple of serious injuries, could have been even greater. The little fact about Kevin Gallon is that if Andy Cole hadn't have gone to Man United, apparently he was Alex Ferguson's next choice. Oh, apparently. Really? Oh, yeah, wow. well, well, he was in the mix. Maybe yeah. not next choice, but he was in yeah. the mix. He was rated that highly, Kevin Gallon. Yeah, he's, he's very good. I do remember Gallon. Yeah, he's a very talented striker. Um, so, and, but it was too early for him. We had, you mm-hmm. know, to replace Les, him and Danny Dickio was, the, you know, the two young kids from from our youth team who had broke records at youth level, but they weren't ready to mm-hmm. fill the gap of someone who was was so good to a team that we knew that he was irreplaceable really at that time. And we spent the money on, oh, I think guys like Ned Zellick. There's a name that I, I doubt anyone would remember. Simon. Australian, Osborne. wasn't he? Ned Zellick. Yeah, Australian. Yeah. Yeah. I think I think he lasted about three months before he went back to, I think he played in Germany with, I think it was maybe Frankfurt. Could yeah. be wrong on that. Um, but yeah, that, you know, it was six million quid, which is, seems like a ridiculous less amount of money in modern times, but it was big for, for QPR and it was wasted and we never... Arguably, <laughs> he ne- never really recovered. I mean, the turning point was when Jerry left on a fateful Monday night football, I think, against Liverpool, actually, where Rodney Marsh was meant to be coming in. I remember that now. Yeah, yeah. We, we lost the game. I remember Monday night football. Um, God, yeah, that's brought memory back. Yeah, we um, there was all those. Yeah, he'd gone that night, I think. And I think watching the game, home, I thought, oh, there's turmoil at QPR. We'll win this. And you beat, I think, 2-1. Yeah. I think someone gave you the lead. Can't remember who it was. And then John Barnes, I think, equalised for us. And I thought, we'll go on and win this. And then somebody else for QPR got the winner. I think Les got the winner, actually. Yeah, that sounds there. about right. Yeah, God, yeah, you've got, got memory back there. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And so the, the idea was, I think chairman at the time, Richard Thompson, wanted to bring Rodney Marsh in as a yeah. director of football or something, put Jerry's nose out of joint. And I think within a week or so, Jerry had gone and Ray Wilkins had taken over. So that was the first beginning of the end of that team. And mm. then when Les went, Ray Wilkins was inexperienced and didn't really take on the mantle of Jerry. And uh, yeah, I mean, we, we wouldn't return to the top flight for what, 16, 17 years after that. Yeah, no, yeah, you really sparked memory there. I remember that really, really well. Um, yeah, as you say, Les Fern, I'm back at the club now as director of football, which is obviously fantastic, you know, sort of completely gone full circle. So that's excellent. Right, Ash, we're going to move on from the 90s uh, shortly, uh, which is obviously bad news for both of us as we you know, talk <laughs> yeah. about it. Do we ever? <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, we have, we've got to move on. There's plenty more to talk about QPR. But before we leave QPR in the 90s, I'm going to ask you to talk about one more thing. I'm basically going to say three words and let you just talk about this as much as you like. So here we go. Trevor Sinclair Barnsley. <laughs> Discuss. Oh, he's wearing the T-shirt with it on. That is absolutely fantastic. That is best goal you've seen by a uh, QPR player. Oh, yeah, absolutely undeniably. <laughs> there have been some great classic QPR goals over the years. The Roy Wedley one I mentioned. Jerry Francis um, in the 70s, that team against Liverpool. But nothing, nothing compares to, the, to Trev's goal. Um, it's a shame it comes in such an innocuous fourth round FA Cup tie against Barnsley that it, it sometimes doesn't get, well, I don't know, it does get the credit it deserves, I think, actually, once the, the anniversary rolls around. But I, I was there that day and Fantastic. it's the, the same thing I always I always talk about is that 
when Trev hits that volley and it and it's the back of the for anyone who's never seen it and, and lived under a FA Cup rock, because it's always rolled out when third round, fourth round comes on the great goals. I think it's a ball by John Spencer, a player who I loved, who was unlucky to not make my team, my all-time team. Floats the ball in, Trev back to goal at the edge of the box, bicycle kick on the volley, dips over. I think it's Alan Miller in the in the Barnsley goal. Um, and there's just a hush. There's literally a split second around Loftus Road where I think everyone collectively turned to themselves and went, did I just see what I've seen? And then proceeded to go bonkers, which were 10 times more bonkers than we probably went if it was a normal goal against Barnsley in the FA Cup fourth round. It was a phenomenal piece of skill. It's the best overhead kick ever. I know well, a lot of my friends always wind me up, you know, give me Rivaldo, Bale, Ronaldo, I think Stan Collymore would score one for Leicester, I think, at one point. But no, the, on the volley, outside of the box, just an absolute worldie. Um, the funny thing about that game is Gavin Peacock scored earlier on in that game, which is a great goal. And I'd forgotten about it until I was speaking to him a few weeks ago. And it's, it's completely gone, like just removed itself from everyone's memory yeah. and almost the record because Trebs is so good. And it beat David Beckham's hit and hope, if you like, against Wimbledon to goal of the season. So when everyone that goal is talked about, I go, we didn't win goal of the season, though, did it? Yeah. Yeah, just give listeners a little bit of context. So, yeah, it was the 25th of January, 1997. FA Cup fourth round tie between QPR and Barnsley at Loftus Road. QPR won 3-2. And uh, the goal we're talking about from Trevor, Trevor Sinclair made it 3-1 to QPR. And as you say, it was a quite unbelievable overhead kick. Crossed from the right. And he's basically dead centre yeah. in a central point on the edge of Barnsley's box. And he just basically flies through the air like Superman. His entire body is in the air when he connects with the ball. It's the sweetest connection you'll ever see. It flies sort of dead centre over the keeper as yeah. well. It dips right over him. It's absolutely sweet. It doesn't take a deflection or veer in the air at all. It just goes like a bullet. And what, one of the other things I love about it as well is the celebration. I don't know who the player is, who he runs off, but he sort of runs towards the dugout. And there's like a, like a high camera above the stand yeah, that he's running towards. I think it's above the dugouts, the stand yeah. with the dugouts on, maybe. And there's just something about the angle. It's not an angle you see often. It's got kind of over the top of him as he's running towards the dugouts. So even the celebration's a bit iconic as well. I mean, the whole thing yeah, is just... like that, isn't it? Yeah, he's yeah. He's celebrating with somebody as well. He's got a teammate with him. I can't quite remember that one. I think it's Brevet. I think it's yeah, Rupert it might be Rupert Sprevet. That sounds about right. Yeah. Yeah. No, just an absolute, yeah, just an absolute incredible goal, isn't it? Yeah. So yeah. I think I asked you before, best QPR goal you've seen in the flesh? Oh, definitely in the flesh, yeah. without yeah. doubt. Without a doubt. And the classic line I always, I always remember from Trev afterwards was that he, he said, I try all the time in training. Balloons over the bar, probably. Yeah, of course you did. Of course you did, Trev. But yeah, I, I mean, I think he still dines out on that goal, and and, and, he, and so he should because, as you say, the fact that it's he's so central and the ball—it's almost like you could put a ruler from yeah. like the lot from where he hits it to the goal. And I, I don't think it veers. I think it's such a straight hit that goes over yeah. the goalie's head. Oh, it's yeah. For, if you haven't seen it, and I can't believe that you haven't, go check that out because it's yeah, it's a wonder goal. Spencer. Danny Maddox has made the run forward. He's lost out and he's won it back. A little bit fortuitous there, Queen's Park Rangers. What can Maddox do with it? He's delivered deep towards Sinclair. What a goal! Trevor Sinclair! 3-1 to QPR. And that is a goal that you will see time and time again. The perfect overhead kick. An absolutely sublime finish from Trevor Sinclair. 
Yeah, well, I, I was watching it in the preparation for this podcast, and I think there's about six clips of it. It's so easy to find. You just <laughs> yeah. Google. I think if you Google Trevor Sinclair, the first thing that yeah. comes up is versus Barnsley. Yeah, Barnsley goal or something. So easy to find. No, I think it's a gif. Like, so if it's a gif, you know how famous it is. Yeah. Like, if you type in Trevor Sinclair on whatever gif thing you use on Twitter, I think that comes up. So it's which makes it much easier when I'm tweeting from the alive and kicking account <laughs> find it rather than try and find another video of it. But yeah, it's uh, yeah. Yeah. It's, a, it's a wonder goal. It's, no. it's up there with the best I've ever seen. Absolutely, mate. No, it... of what club. Yeah, no, incredible goal. Absolutely incredible. Um, right, I want to talk about Loftus Road in a bit. You did touch on this earlier. Um, I mean, it's, or as we should say, officially known since June 2019, the Kian Prince Foundation Stadium in memory of Kian Prince, a 15-year-old QPR youth player who was, who was tragically murdered in May 2006. Um it's it's a great I love it. It's a great stadium. I've been there a few times as a journalist. I've been there a few times as a Liverpool fan. Uh, to let you know, I have been in the away end at Loftus Road. I was there for that three two horrible three two defeat in twenty twelve when we were two nil up. Sebastian Quartes, talk about great overhead kicks. He scored a pretty good overhead kick. Yeah, not as good as uh, not as good as Sinclair's, but um uh yeah, we were two nil up. Same end. Yeah, same end indeed as well. And then QPR won three yeah. two. I think Mark Hughes was the manager at the time. Um but yeah, it's a great ground, really sort of, I mean, first of all, it's easy to get to. It's quite quite a simple walk from White City to, which I was like. Um, and it's, as you say, a really tight, compact ground. The stands are right by the pitch. Um, if you're in the sort of front row, you can you can basically touch the player if he's mm-hmm. taking a throw in on that side as well. Um, and it feels like, for me, a stadium that always generates a good atmosphere. That's probably, probably uh, going over the top a bit. I'm sure there's been some quiet days and nights at Loftus Road, but... <laughs> Yeah, you touched on it earlier. I mean, yeah, I mean, just talk about someone who's been there far more than I've. I've been there probably a dozen times. I mean, is it gen- It feels like it's the same that lends itself automatically and naturally to a great atmosphere because of how compact and tight it is. Yeah, it does. It doesn't take too much to create a noise in Loftus Road because it's so compact. Not saying that you know we don't make enough noise because I think we do, especially when, when the occasion is warranted. But yeah, I mean, it's it's a real conundrum with QPR fans because Loftus Road is of an age. You know, there is not much more you can do. When Flavio and Bernie Eccleston came in, they tried to kind of tart the ground up, but it's slap bang in the middle of a housing estate. There used to be a school at the back of it. I think that's now turned into more houses, a school my dad went to. That's how close he was to when he was younger. Um, So you can't do anything with it. So there is this constant conversation and constant, not quite elephant in the room, but kind of knowledge that at some point, especially revenue-wise, we will have to move because it's a 19,000 at best stadium. I'll say 20, but I, you know, the corners are so you don't fill them in because you can't see anything. So they're very rarely mm. um, filled in. Cause it's still, it's, it's that old that, as I said earlier, there are certain seats in the ground where you'll sit with a post and you'll be doing, you know, going from side to side, trying to f- follow the action every now and then. Cause it's just a, a stadium of his age. And yeah. they try to lop on massive screens onto the side of it, which, just looked like at some point a ball was going to hit it and it was going to flop down like a you know <laughs> an LCD TV was just going to flop onto the onto the but at the same time we love it because there aren't many grounds left like it in in you know Goodison Park has a kind of feel like that but they've managed to I've been there a few occasions as a as a journalist and, and seen it in on the on the inside and I can see how much more it's come on from you know a Loftus Road but it's the fact that it's tight knit that you can almost see the away fans from the furthest seat in the other end it just makes for an atmosphere especially under the lights for some reason i think all football grounds when yeah. as you know from anfield especially like under the lights it just feels even more compact and special and i don't think we'd ever be able to recreate that 
atmosphere and that kind of close-knit feel Loftus Road has with a new ground, even if you try to model it on it, because it was just built of an era. And I would be devastated to leave, but no, at the same time, we have to at some point. So it's very bittersweet, but for the moment, we're not going anywhere. And I, I wish we used it more as an advantage. I think sometimes our home record isn't as good as it probably should be, given that the ground is... I think an advantage like the Dell used to be for Southampton back in the nineties. Obvs, oh. um, but yeah, it's just, it is a special. And I always hear that like everyone I always speak to, non QPR fans, says, "Oh, I love going to Loftus Road because I think it feels like a football ground." Absolutely, like, yeah. You yeah, know, yeah, there are yeah, too many stadiums yeah. now that feel like a stadium, not yeah. a football ground. Yeah, so, yes. I mean, modern a lot of modern stadiums like the Emirates, like the Etihad, which I've been to, they feel like sort of spaceships that have been sort of dropped yeah. onto Earth. There's, there's something very they're amazing, architecturally absolutely amazing, but slightly something slightly de- detached. Basically, you go to a ground like Loftus Road, Goodison as well, and you just feel like you're in a to use that slightly cliche phrase, a proper football ground. Yeah. And it's how close you are to the pitch as well. And there's a, there's intensity to watching football there that yeah you don't get in a lot of the modern grounds i think it's, it's a and it rocks game. like on a night you know the playoff the famous playoff final um where we beat oldham in 2004 i want to say 2003 2004 um paul furlong scored the winner we lost the final to cardiff that the, you know that year but i remember it physically almost shaking mm. because it's often it was of an age and it but it made that atmosphere feel even more intense and it'd be something I would miss so much if and when you know the Rangers move. Yeah have you been able to get back there since uh, this season obviously with fans back and has that been a slightly different experience? I haven't been to the first two games just to, due yeah. to family commitment so I'm going on Saturday to Coventry um, so I'm looking forward to that. I, I went to one of the games in the in-betweeny lockdowny thing um, where they were allowed, I don't, was it 2000 or whatever mm, it was? Yeah. Oh, yeah, I, hated it. I hated I really, it. Yeah. It just oh, wasn't, wasn't the same. Was that, oh, that's interesting. Was that worse being in a crowd with being in a, a crowd of only 2000? Was that worse than watching it on TV during that period? Because I didn't go to Anfield once during that. Uh, I didn't do any of the 2000 games. I watched everything at home. But my sense was at least it would at least be better than watching it at home. Even yeah. It's only 2000. I think it was slightly, yeah, it was better being there and you felt like, you know, as silly as football fans do, like you were making some sort of small difference, the fact that you were there, which is a ridiculous statement, but in your mm. in football fans' heads, you always think like that, don't you? So it was, but it's almost like those early, you know, Parabo, Carling Cup, whatever you want to call it, yeah. round, and there's only half the ground full and mm. you know that keep you going to fall to an inevitable defeat to a lower league team feel about the game and it... It shouldn't have that for a league game, especially because the team were starting to play. Well, no, actually, we're still in our slump at that point, which made it even worse with before the loans came in in January. But yeah, it wasn't a, a great experience. So yeah, I'm chomping at the bit on Saturday for a packed loft. I'm, I'm glad I missed the first game because my in-laws are Millwall. Um, and it's a game that whatever the season we always try to do, because my brother-in-law I'm very close to, we always go and we always try to get to sit in the same end and pretend we're not the other team and, and, and then things like that. But we couldn't quite manage it this season. So yeah, Saturday I'll be there back in our block and uh, yeah, I can't wait. Excellent. Lovely stuff. Brilliant. Well, I said, we'll come on to, we'll come on to modern QPR very shortly. We'll also come on to your uh, all time 11 as well, which um, as I said, heavily weighted towards that yeah. 92, 93 squad. Before we do that, I do want to talk about one very specific era uh, in QPR's relatively modern history. And you did, you, you briefly touch on it there. It is the Bernie Eccleston, Flavio mm-hmm. Briatori era. Uh, so two F1 tycoons who bought the, who bought the club for 14 million pounds in, in November, 2007 at a time 
when the club was finding itself in, in financial trouble. Uh, they had great ambitions for the plan uh, for the club. Sorry, uh, they've got a lot of ego as well. And their plan was to get QPR from the Championship to the Premier League inside four years. Hence the name of an infamous documentary, uh, which we'll talk about shortly. Yeah. Um, they were sort of successful, weren't they? Really, QPR got promoted in uh, as Championship champions in 20, 2011. But my God, it was um, it was a turbulent time, wasn't it? I think probably the the, the key or the standout stats from that period of the Eccleston Briatori uh, period, which is basically up from 2007 up until August 2011 when they sold up to Tony Fernandez, was that you had eight different managers: Luigi Di Canio, Ian Dowie, Gareth Ainsworth, Paolo Sosa, Jim Magilton, Paul Hart, Mick Hartford, and Neil Warnock. Um, we'll talk about four-year plan specifically uh, in a second, which is the documentary I mentioned. But yeah, what are your memories of sporting QPR during those mad four years? God, where'd you start, Sash? I mean, <laughs> it was, you know, people always joke online about their club being like Hartchester and United from Dream Team. But <laughs> I mean, for that sort of period, we really were like... And this alludes to that in that in that documentary. I mean, when they came in, it was so needed because we'd been through administration in the early 2000s. You know, we'd worked our way back from from the brink almost, if we're honest, from, you know, buckets outside Loftus Road with mm. pennies being thrown in. And, you know, we were at that state at some point. Ian Holloway came in. He bought this, he galvanised this team. You had the likes of Gallen, Bircham, Ainsworth, you know, that promotion team that came up the second place at Hill and the famous day at Hillsborough. We, you know, we'd come from the brink and we were back in the championship. And then suddenly we were bought as the boutique club is the famous phrase around Loftus Road at the time by these two mega stars. They, you know, they revamped it. They changed the badge, which to this day looks like a pro Evo creation <laughs> at, with weird, like silver bits down the side that actually look like, um, Flavio's hair. Like, he had. <laughs> Maybe like, that was the intention. I he don't know, had a it, massive it, ego on him. He did have a massive ego, and it <laughs> wouldn't surprise me in the slightest if that was part of it. I mean, you could say it looked like Jerry Francis's hair, who still yeah. rocks that hair today. Fair play to him, but it, yeah, the badge was awful. You know, they were they just you know it had London on it. It was all about being a boutique football club, and yeah. then you know you say we had eight managers. I think at least two of them left in very controversial circle you have Paolo Sosa who was leaking information team information to, to people he shouldn't been so he was removed yeah Jim Jilton who had allegedly headbutted I think it was Akosh Pisaki after a game and then was removed so they weren't even to do with Flavio so everything seemed that they Gianni Paladini was chairman he was held at gunpoint yeah. at one point in in the boardroom you know, these are, these are storylines from a, you know, footballers' wives or dream team. These aren't, this shouldn't happen at a football club. We had a fight with a Chinese youth team that our assistant manager, Matt Hill, got reprimanded for. There was so much wrong like, at that level of the club because, that you know, Bernie was very standoffish. He didn't see a lot of Bernie Eccleston. He was very much the money man, but Flavio wanted to be owner, manager. He wanted to have his hands all over it and... He had no experience of running a football mm. club, obviously. And you can see that, as you say, in the four-year plan. And it was, I mean, yes, eventually they got QPR promoted. Whether or not that was down to what they did is highly debatable. And there's a lot more to do with how brilliant Neil Warnock did as when he came in as manager and the team that he built. And someone I'm, I'm sure we'll talk about in due course, Adel Tarrat mm. as well. But for a time, I mean, the Gigi Tucano is a very underrated period. He was a, he was a very good manager and got us playing some lovely football. 
But after that, it was just, yeah, manager after manager, uh, by, sacked by an owner who wanted to be in the bench and just, he was clueless. He really was. Yeah. Well, it was all captured in four-year plan, which yeah. is an absolutely extraordinary fly-on-the-wall documentary. One of the great fly-on-the-wall documentaries. It was made by uh, filmmaker Matt Hodgson and as it followed, followed QPR during that Eccleston, Briatori era. Uh, and there's some absolute jaw-dropping moments in it. I think probably for me, the two highlights are um, there, was a, there was a scene where Fitz Hall mm. is pleading with uh, Palladini, Gianni Palladini, who was the chairman, as you said at the time, not to loan their QPR's top scorer, Dexter Blackstock, to Nottingham Forest. And Palladini, in response, is saying he has no idea why the club is sanctioning the move. That was caught on camera. And another moment where I think Eccleston and Briatore in the stand at Loftus Road, and they're caught basically trying to, or they're discussing the best way to get instructions to the manager. I don't know who it was at the time. Yeah, midway, was it in Dowie? Yeah, midway yeah. through a game, in, you know, in terms of the tactical information. Um, it was actually a jaw-dropping documentary. I think it was shown in 2011, 2012, that period. I think 2012, actually. Um, I mean, you must be watching it behind the sofa as a QPR fan. Yeah. It, you know, in the days of, you know, all the Amazon documentaries and the, the Sunderland one on Netflix and stuff, this really is the original yeah. And, and, and not many people, are, you know, you have to really point it out to people that it exists. Cause I think it's quite hard to, I have, I've got it on DVD somewhere. Um, but I, I, I don't know how else you, if you can actually get a watch it these days, but yeah, it's the, it really is a jaw dropping. And I've spoken um, to the guy that Matt, who made it as well. And he says the footage that he, the, the, the strange thing is a lot of that footage was okayed by Flavio Briatore. This really? is the ego wow. of the guy. He actually got a final set, a lot of final say of what was covered. So a lot of what you're seeing, he thinks he's okay behaviour, which is one of the scariest things about it. And we've been told that there is, a, you know, there's hours of footage that he wasn't okay with, which I would, you know, if he ever wants to release four year plan uncut, I'm here for it. I, I was going to say, yeah, the stuff that didn't, that the stuff that yeah. was bad must be absolutely unbelievable. <laughs> exactly. If I'm, I'm booking a day off work to sit there <laughs> and, and consume that in all day and, and, and thank that we're not in that era anymore. But yeah, it's, it is a fascinating, if you're a fan of those documentaries that are somewhat a bit puffy pieces in some of them these days, this is very much warts and all. And that moment you mentioned about, you know, Dexter Blackstock was, was quite loved at the time. The club did probably more um, for, for the club than people realise. He was a very good player for us. Then he was sold out. And it's his, he doesn't know why he's being sold. And Fitz doesn't know why he's being loaned. And it's, it's, it's so cringy. And I, yeah, I, it, ashamed is probably a bit hot, bit too harsh, but, it was very much a hand in head, just watching it, shaping it, going, I can't believe this had happened to the club. And thankfully, it came out after we'd been promoting. And, you know, what we did once promotion is, is another, you know, mess altogether. But yeah, yeah it's, a, it's a fascinating watch for sure. Yeah, yeah, as you say, it came out the season you were back in the Premier League, which was 2011, 2012. Um, yeah, I saw, it on, I saw it on BBC One, I think, one night. It's all like a Sunday uh, yeah. night, I think. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so, yeah, if anyone, I don't know if it is around an iPlayer or whatever, but if anyone can find it, hasn't seen it, do watch it. It's probably on YouTube, actually. It's absolutely. Yeah, it might be. Yeah. yeah. No, it's, it's absolutely, it's enthralling. Oh, yeah. Well, they almost ruined the promotion as well because of the transfer of Ali Fawley. And like, I don't know if you'd remember that. We yeah, won. I do remember. It was a very sort of complicated affair, wasn't it? That's, yeah. Uh, but... Yeah. It was there was financial eager. I can't even say the word. There was bad financial <laughs> play in in the dealing transfer dealings with uh, Ali Fallin, the, the Argentine yeah. midfielder, and even literally to the final day of the season, which was against Leeds. Um, to that we'd been we, we'd won the league. We'd been what for the, the week before we had won the league. If you looked at it, but we were waiting for this points deduction. Mm-hmm. And it's, I think it's in that. Yeah, it's in that documentary, isn't it? That he. Paldini, the chairman at the time, he, he runs through with the piece of paper saying, no points deducted, no points deducted. <laughs> and, you know, 
we didn't we couldn't celebrate it was such a horrible final day for that first sort of couple of hours we're all milling around Loftus Road we're champions we'd won the uh-huh. league but we couldn't celebrate and then you just hear this slow roar come up Loftus Road and you just like I think it was released by the BBC or someone had, had put it on maybe in early days of social that there would there'd be a, a huge fine but no points deducted which allowed us to then enjoy the day CSB champions but you know even to the point of their four year or however long it took in the end, it always ruined on that last moment because of some dodgy dealings, for want of a better phrase, on the transfer of Ali Fallin. Yeah, I actually covered that game against Watford when you won the title. I, I covered it for the Guardian. Um, it, was a, it was a Saturday, wasn't it? I'm pretty yeah, sure it was. It was yeah. yeah, it was on a Saturday. You won at Vicarage Road. And I remember we were speaking to Neil Warnock after the game. You'd won the league. You were, you were going back to the Premier League. But all the questions were about the fall-in deal and whether it was going to cost Leeds promotion and stuff. So, yeah, it was a real cloud over that promotion. And then that season, you were absolutely fantastic. On the yeah. pitch, deserved winners. And fall was a big part of that, wasn't he? He was a great player. Um, so, yeah, so QPIZ got promoted under Neil Warnock in 2011. You were then relegated again in uh, 2015, following a bit of a messy spell under Harry Redknapp. And um, you've been in the championship ever since. Uh, as of recording, you're currently fifth. You've played four games. You've won two. Uh, you've drawn two. The most recent games are two-all draw with Barnsley, where you were 2-0 down and uh, got back to 2-2. The equaliser, 91st-minute equaliser from Charlie Austin, who, who, I'm, who I'm pretty sure, for, again, looking at your tweets and knowing a little bit about his history at QPR, is a bit of a, a, bit of a legend there as well uh, at the club. Um, yes, obviously looks quite promising under Mark Warburton this season. You've been doing well for a while now. I think you touched on it before. So since the sort of loans came in in January, sort of back end of last season, you've been on a decent run of form. So what are your aspirations for this season? And and also I'm really curious as a club that's had sort of decent spells in the top flight, you know, in the seventies, in the eighties, in the nineties, as we've touched on, do QPR fans see QPR as a, as a top flight club? Is that where you feel you belong? Um, it's a good question, actually. Definitely not in the 2000s, you know, because mm. that promotion under the Warlock just led to, it was almost a lesson of how not to be promoted. You know, we spent a lot of money because Tony Fernandez came in, as you said, uh, a lot of money on a lot of players who didn't play for the shirt. I know it's a horrible term, but yeah. they weren't the sort of players mm-hmm. that, you know, that should have been playing in a team that were going to be in a relegation fire. And in the end, we had to go back to the players that had actually helped score. There were the likes of Clint Hill and Sean Derry and Jamie Mackey, who scored in that Liverpool game you mentioned. Um, so we had that. And then we had the Harry Redknapp era. You know, the playoff final in 2014 was a moment I'll never forget. Bobby Zamora's goal. You know, he's, we still sing his name in that last minute winner uh, at Wembley when we were down to 10 men. It was a moment he'll never take me away. But then again, the following season, we brought in a load of players that, weren't really the type of signings we needed at that point. You know, the classic is Hosey Pissingwa from Chelsea, who mm. laughed off the pitch as we got relegated that season. It was very, it, it made a lot of a disconnect to the team and, and, and it, a lot of repairing was needed to do, I think. And then obviously a lot of money was spent and we didn't establish ourselves as, as a top flight club. You know, we made our name in folklore being part of the Sergio Aguero moment. You know, we're the, the team that he beats on that final <laughs> t- day in 2012. But we didn't, we didn't make a good fist of it, but we made there was so many poor decisions. Harry Redknapp being one of them, Mark Hughes is not a name that's going to be very well remembered at Loftus Road for a long time. He just never fitted at QPR for a number of reasons. So I think in the subsequent time that's come, the club has kind of cleansed itself from that era. You know, Les came in, Lee Hughes, our chief exec on the money side, has done some great things at the club. And I think we're one, we're one of the clubs in the championship, probably in the best shape, especially after COVID as well, which is great. You know, selling as a uh, summer before last obviously helped that as well. So 
so yeah, sorry to long story short in terms of current. I think we depends what era you've come from in terms of if we think we're a self or a top fly club. I remember it from the nineties and being that kid in the playground that supported that club that no one else did, but somehow were better than most of the teams in that playground because we were, as we said, top London club. So I, you know, I think we are a kind of mid table top flight team is where I think we probably, I don't think belong is probably too strong, but would see the club. Um, whether we'll get there this season, I am cautiously optimistic um, with the current QPR setup. I think the stats are, if you look at the table from 20, start of the, the calendar year, only Norwich and Watford got more points than QPR. And obviously they both got promoted. Um, the loans that we had in January, including Charlie, who became a legend at the club in his first spells, come back. A different type of player, but a player we needed not only for his goals, but his leadership because it's quite a young team. Mm. Um, I love Charlie Austin for a, a lot of reasons. Not, so he, he's definitely a character in the game, as we saw in, in different guises. And, you know, it's no surprise that he's caught an uproar on TalkSport now of his opinions because he's that kind of guy. But that, but our club needed that. We needed that sort of player. Before Christmas, we didn't have a nasty side to us and we needed that kind of niggle in the teams. And, yeah, we had him, Stephanie Hansen, who's a fantastic footballer, at this level, former Norway captain, played in, you know, the old firm, helped Fulham get promoted. Um, so those two players were, were really key in the summer in keeping them. We've done that. We've got another year of Isla Elias Chair, by the looks of it, who's one of the best talents in the division, proper number 10. We've got Chrissy Willock, who's looks like he is getting better month by month. So there's real depth there's real optimism we've got a kit that's modeled on the 1991-92 kit so what better way to celebrate <laughs> that than get promoted um so yeah the, i would session that the the expectations are quite high this season we finished ninth last season so naturally i always think you have to build on the season previous so that would put us in the playoff picture which i think we can do and if we're good enough and stay Get the keep the key players fit. Lyndon Dykes is another key player for us as well. Rob Dickey, I have to mention as well, who will play in the Premier League one day, whether it's for us or not. He's a fantastic, probably the best defender in the Championship at the moment. Sandy Dieng in goal as well. There's, we've got some very good players, and we can do some very good things this season. So I don't like saying it too much because it's you know you, you fear that it's the hope that kills you, I suppose. But if we're not in the playoff mix come May, I would be I would be disappointed. I, for one, hope QPR get promoted because I really do like going to Loftus Road. And, I, and I've got to avenge the uh, that 3-2 defeat in 2012. <laughs> it still stings a little bit. Um, Ash, you've been absolutely fantastic. I'm going to let you go shortly. Before before I do, let, let's talk about your all-time yeah. 11 then. So to stress again, this is a team made up um, of players that Ash has seen during his time supporting QPR. It's in a 4-4-2 formation. So let's go through it. Jan State in goal. Back four. David Bardsley, Alan McDonnell, Clint Hill and Clive Wilson. The midfield is Trevor Sinclair, Ray Wilkins, Adil Tarapt and Andy Sinton. And up front, we've talked about them both, Les Ferdinand and Roy Wegerley. So as I said earlier, seven members of the 92-93 squad. Um, And yeah, I want to talk about Adil Tarapt a bit as well. Um, He was ridiculously good, wasn't he? Also absolutely mad from from what I've heard, from the stories I've heard about him. Um, I'll let you talk about him in a second, just to give a bit of a brief outline about him to people who may not know who he is. Joined QPR on loan from Spurs in March 2009. Uh, The the move was made permanent in August 2010 for a million pounds. He was probably, well, I don't know if it's probably, I think it's a fact, your best the best player of the team that got promoted in 2011 from the championship. Yeah, question. Yeah, and yeah, a mercurial wonderful talent really but but as i said um mad as a box of frogs as well 
<laughs> yeah, he really was. And he'd only worked in that team that season. It's what it was one of those, you know, <laughs> stars aligned. Neil Warnock put trust in him. You know, talk to Sean Derry and he'll tell you the stories of playing with Adil Tarats. Like Sean Derry was basically charged with doing two jobs, like his own job and then <laughs> whatever Adele didn't do but what Adele didn't do what he did do for that club was such vast differences that it made the difference because he he played that season so we're talking 2010 2011 season we got promoted like a like like FIFA like it was his own computer game like there are there are goal the whole goal collection there's a couple against Swansea where he just makes players look silly I've never seen a player take to a league as just and have fun and make players look stupid as much as Adele to Rats. And it's true. I mean, if he had the drive and the mindset of a Ronaldo or someone like that, who knows where he could have ended up playing? I mean, he went to now, Milan, didn't he? Did he go to he went to, he went, yeah, yeah, he went to AC Milan. Well, he, went to, he went to Fulham, he went to AC Milan. Yeah. He's now at Benfica in a defensive midfielder playmaker role, which, really? Bloody hell. which you cannot believe because no. defending was the word he understood <laughs> in, in 2010. But it didn't matter because Warnock had set up this team. He had his soldiers in like Clint Hill, who I met, who's in my team because alongside him and Alan McDonald, I mean, that's blood and thunder. Mac is probably the best defender keeper I've ever had. He was, again, another underrated player of that 92-93 team, Northern Ireland captain. Him and Mark Hughes used to battle out season upon season. Nothing really got past Macca. But Clint Hill was the same ilk, you know, player of the year twice in, in our Premier League era, which it, at the time he wasn't meant to be part of. He was loaned out to Nottingham Forest in, uh, upon our return to the Premier League, but he was brought back because of that drive, that QBR-ness, I like to call it, mm. we need in the team at, at that point. So Adele played in front of those and he was just majestic. Like the bizarre thing, Sash, he didn't win our player of the year that year, which is... Who what, was it? For, for, falling with it? No, Paddy Kenny. Paddy Kenny? Really? Yeah, who had a great season. That is a bit mental. It's got to be an attacking player because you were a really good attacking team that season, weren't yeah, you? Totally, yeah, yeah. Like we had Wade Routledge on line that season. Yeah. There's a goal, um, I think, against Coventry, funnily enough, um, where Adel Tarat passes the ball from the byline with the outside of his foot and he just floats over everyone into Routledge's run, who finishes it off with one touch. It's a beautiful goal. And that kind of summed up yeah. QPR. Not a Neil Warnock team, probably. But it, it definitely worked that season. But no, Paddy, I think everyone just assumed that everyone else would vote for Adil Tarab. So we we're trying to get who would be second and third. All ah, right. And somehow yeah, yeah. Paddy <laughs> Kenny came out. I mean, he got on the mood a lot, Adil Tarab. There's one you know, famous drop in the Premier League days at Fulham where he got the bus home, left at yeah. half time, he got the bus home. Um, but I imagine he got an even bigger drop that year when he didn't win the player of the year. Because he was a championship player of the year, but he wasn't his own club's player of the yeah. year, which was. It was kind of bizarre, but yeah, he, he's uh, definitely a mercurial footballer. Somebody, you know, we used to sing Adel, you know, Tower Abs too good for you because he was, he was too good for that division. It's such a shame. He never really got, he had a mo- couple of moments in the Premier League, um, mainly under Warnock, who still trusted him, but no one else seemed to really, you know, he had a falling out with Redknapp who questioned his fitness and his weight. Um, and that was kind of it. I mean, the, the, the standout moments in the Premier League scored a lovely goal against Fulham with the outside of his foot again. And then it was, a, I think it was a game against West Ham. I think we were 2 0 down. And he was on the bench. And he came on. He literally took one touch, was on the corner of box, and just curled one into the top corner. And he, I just remember turning to my dad and like, that's Adele. Mm-hmm. Like, he'll do those things. It's just in the Championship, he got away with his faults and he couldn't do that in the Premier League. But I, I could not have him in this team. And I know. There are there are players outside that 92 93 team. I, I struggle, you know, there, there aren't enough of that Ian Holloway team. You know, Gallon could have a shout, Birch, 
Martin Rowlands, Charlie Austin was is unlucky not to get in my team. But you know, when you got Ferdinand and Wegley up front, and when you had Trevor Sinclair and Andy Sinton on the wings, it's it's hard. These were such of high caliber players that it's, it's difficult. I mean, Rob Steiner is a player I loved at QBR, who many people won't remember. Kind of a cult hero. He's another one that deserves to mention. John Spencer as well, but. Yeah, I could keep this, you had to go with that team and then a sprinkle of the 2011 side that got promoted. I think goalie is always the one I struggle with because I don't think we've ever had... A st- I think if you asked 100 QPR fans, you might get kind of sort of 80 different answers in, in, in terms of who you pick as number one. I think Phil Parks would be definitely from mm. the previous era, yeah. then probably Dave Seaman. But from my own era, there isn't really a standout candidate. I mean, I loved Jan because he was Czech number one at the World Cup in Talia 90. Um, he made his debut in that Roy Wegley goal game as well. And he was just a, a very good goalkeeper of that era, wearing one of the best goalie tops we've ever had as well. Um, so he would be my pick. But he's the hardest kind of choice because there isn't really a standout one. You know, you could say Paddy Kenny had a great spell. Chris Day had a great spell, but he'd be mine. But yeah, so 92-93 mixed with a sprinkling of 2011 is, is kind of my team. No, well, I mean, that's an outsider looking into that team. There's a lot of names I recognise. I mean, mainly because of that 92, 93 season. A lot of them from there. And yeah, hard to argue. I mean, Fernand Wegley just sort of feels like QPR's sort of dream attack. I mean, <laughs> Stan Bowles is in the mix. And as you say, yeah. Gallon and and uh, and Charlie Austin as well. But yeah, that just sounds kind of perfect, I think, as a QPR front two, Fernand and Wegley. Obviously, great blend as well. Um, fantastic stuff, Ash. As you say, you've been absolutely fantastic. Going to let you go soon. Before I do, ask you the final question that I ask all guests that, who come onto this podcast. Um, if you can go back in time and alter one moment from your time sporting QPR up to now, and it can be absolutely anything. It could be uh, a goal, a transfer, a very personal moment, uh, a match, uh, a managerial appointment, anything you want, what would you choose? Oh, there's a fair few manager appointments. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. In that sort of that four-year spell uh, under yeah. sorry, Eccleston, perhaps. Yeah, Paul Hart is not one, but it's not <laughs> Um, I mean, there's many things in that that, Premier, that more modern Premier League era that we did yeah. wrong that I would change. Um, but there's probably too many that you'd have to change to make a real difference. I think actually, and obviously I'm going to go back to the 90s because that's that's bookend the podcast the way it should be, Sash, is Jerry leaving in that mm. kind of yeah. 90s. Because I think if he had stayed and given we were top London club at the time and la- allowed to progress that team without the interference, as we said, that was trying to become on him with Rodney Marsh. And Les may have stayed if he indicated that this team was a, was no longer a selling club and we were about to progress. Then who knows? Like, may, you know, we certainly probably wouldn't have been relegated the following season if we still had Les. Who knows where we would have, what we would have established at Loftus Road. I'm not saying we would become, a you know, a top four or whatever the next modern era would have been, but I would safely say we wouldn't have had the troubles that we had in those early 2000s where we, you know, we were on the brink. So probably, yeah, I think Jerry leaving was a massive, massive you know, moment in that era because it led to Les and it led to that ultimate downfall there that we never really recovered from until the end of, the sort of 20, 2010, 2011. So, yeah, I think Jerry Francis leaving in, in the early 90s would probably be the moment I'd change. I'd be really interested to see him take that team on. He went mm-hmm. to Spurs and obviously didn't pull up many trees, but had an attractive team there. And I think he could have progressed QPR on as well. That's a great answer. And it's a 90s reference, which is the perfect way to end this podcast. Uh, Ash Rose, thank you very, very much. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. I could talk to Sash. I could talk to you for hours, not just about QPR, but yeah, 
we could stay in our 90s bubble for as long as possible, couldn't we? Yeah, let's do that. I'll, I'll end this recording and then we'll just chat about the 90s. We'll talk about Alexi Lalas and USA 94. <laughs> <laughs> Cheers, mate. I remember hearing the rallying cry of Come on you Oz Bellow From Oxbridge Road to Shepherds Bush Station Born to bleed blue and white We was built in the era of grit and determination A true London legacy A club for our community is what we are And meant to be Ferdinand, Marsh, Bowles Legends in our tapestry because we built this club from the ground up, the crest is in our DNA from down and out comebacks to last minute winners at Wembley. Zamora! Let's not forget the lows, the losses, the Ray Jones. Would have been QPR royalty that I can presume, but just like Harkai and Prince, taken too soon. Their names cemented in our history, they will forever be our own. But through every tragedy, you turn the corner to Loftus Road and you are never alone, you're home. Stand united as one Rangers because we are the finest football team the world has ever seen. And it's Queens Park Rangers, the blue and white super hoops. On the brink of non-existence, morale at its lowest, we were there to raise our troops. Bircham, Ainsworth, Rowlands, men that wore our hearts on their sleeves. And now we look to our future legends and sing. Oh, Captain Jack, meet me by the railway track. With a scarf in your hand, I will be your Rangers man. So shake this loft to its haunches. Make this church be our fortress. We know who we are. You know who we are. We are QPR.